Welcome to Bible Breath, where we dig into the Word of God to catch our breath for whatever's coming next. Today we're continuing to go through the Ten Commandments, focusing on the commandments that teach us how to interact well with our neighbors, teaching us how to honor God as we interact with the people around us. And remember, our neighbor is anyone around us, and especially those who are in need of mercy and help. Let's review the commandments that we've talked about so far. Remember, remember that we're using the numbering system that you find in Martin Luther's book called The Small Catechism. Do you remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. And the second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. And now we get to the fifth commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Remember for each of these commandments that we're using to talk about how to interact with our neighbors, we're going to state the general principle or category of life that the commandment addresses. And then we'll look at some other places in the Bible that make some specific applications to that general category. And the general category that we talk about with the fifth commandment is this life, the safekeeping of one another's physical lives. And to start thinking about that, I'd like you to think about a sand castle. You ever gone down to the beach to build a sand castle? You go down to the beach and pull some, you get a bucket and you get some water from uh, water from the ocean or the gulf or the, the stream or whatever it is and you come back to the sand and you pour the water on the sand so that it's nice and packy, and then you start putting it together. Maybe you even have other, other buckets that you're putting the sand in and you're packing it down and you fill it to the top and then you turn it over and now you have a, a little building that you have and then you take another one and you put it on top of it, another building on the side, and you can get really decorative with this. You can make a big, a big castle with, with towers and drawbridge that wouldn't actually work as a drawbridge because you're dealing with sand, of course, <laughs> but, but windows and you can build a, a moat around and things like that. But let's say you're spending a great day at the beach and you have invested about 90 minutes of your day in building a phenomenal sandcastle. And you take a step back to marvel at the great work that you have done. And after three seconds of doing that, your little brother comes running along and throws himself into the sandcastle, destroying the whole thing. How would you feel? <laughs> Maybe the same way on a lower level that God feels when anybody hurts or harms or destroys a life that he created. He made more than a sandcastle. He made a life. Although when he made the first life, it was, it was kind of like building a sandcastle. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, we go back to the creation of Adam. And it, after God had formed the, the universe and the known world and everything that was in it, by just speaking and saying, let there be birds and let there be water and let there be sky and all the different things. It says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. So he didn't just say, let there be a guy. He took the dust, he took the dirt, he took the sand, and he, he formed it. 
And then he breathed into his nostrils, it says. The breath of life. And the man became a living being. God's fingerprints were all, all over Adam because God made him. And of course, we've talked about this in a previous lesson. It wasn't just Adam that God made. His fingerprints are all over your life too. In Psalm 139, a Psalm of David, David writes, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. God is the one who puts together every life, including yours. And of course, soon after God formed Adam's life, death would become a part of life on account of sin. God would save us from that death with the promise of a Savior and the sending of a Savior and the work of the Savior. But that doesn't change the fact that as long as we are on earth, our lives are God's. God has final rights over our lives because he made us. In fact, if you fast forward from the Garden of Eden to Genesis chapter 9, God is talking with Noah after the worldwide flood, giving him some instructions on what life is supposed to look like now in the new world. And he says something interesting. He says, from each human being, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. In other words, he's telling Noah already, if anyone takes a life, he has to answer to God. No one has the right to take another human being's life, God was saying. Now, there is one scriptural exception. There is one group to whom God gives the right, not the command, but the right to take a life. Do you know what that group is? The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 13. It's one of the authority figures that we mentioned when we talked through the fourth commandment. It's not parents. It's not church leaders. It's the government. In Romans 13, Paul wrote, For the one in authority, talking about government, is God's servant for your good. God established government offices to, to do us good, to benefit our lives, to, uh, to create peaceful societies. But if you do wrong, then you should be afraid, Paul said. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. And that word of the sword, that's very intentional, because the sword is one of the ways that they executed people back then. For the worst types of crimes, crimes that disrespected other people's lives to such a high degree or ended other people's lives, the punishment for that was the sword, taking the sword and using it against the person who committed that crime. It was the death penalty. Paul goes on to say, these are God's servants as they carry these things out, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Again, God gives the right, not the command, to take a life. He gives that right to the government for the sake of punishing wrongs, for the sake of preventing evil by the threat of that punishment. And he expects our, government, our governments to take that permission very seriously, to act with a lot of wisdom, a lot of patience, a lot of care, and a lot of prayer. So government has the right to take life, which is why law enforcement officers have the right to do that in certain, certain cases. Military has the right to do that in certain cases. Um, governments have the right to use the death penalty if they think it's fitting of the crime or if it's, it's a wise use. They don't have to do those things, but they do have the right. God gives that right just to the government. Now, if they misuse that, then they break this commandment. Just like there are many ways that anybody, even outside of government, can break the fifth commandment. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, we have probably the most well-known example in the Bible of breaking this commandment, the commandment, you shall not murder. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the world's first murder. It's between two brothers, Cain and Abel. It says that one day Cain said to his brother Abel, and Cain, leading up to this point, he had become very jealous of Abel. He said, he said, hey, brother, let's go out into the field. 
And so Abel went and followed him. And once they got out into the field, scripture tells us that Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Whether he was intending to kill him or he accidentally killed him, we don't know. But the result was that he killed him. And then the Lord came to Cain and said, Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. And then a very famous line was spoken. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, am I responsible for looking after his life? The Lord said, what is this you've done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So he's basically saying, yeah, you are responsible for looking out for your brother's life. But this is the most clear example of breaking the fifth commandment when it says you shall not murder, murdering someone, ending someone's life. That's breaking the fifth commandment. And ending somebody's life at any point after conception. Go back to Psalm 139 and Psalm of David. Notice how David talks about the life in the womb. When he says to God, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He's talking about that life as if it were alive and alive. Lives inside the womb have already been knit together by God. They are alive. And so ending those lives through abortion or, um, or any other means is murder. Now, someone might ask, well, what about when the life of the baby and the mother are both in danger? And the doctors come to you and they tell you this and you have to choose one. You say, we can't save both. We can only focus our attention on one and we think we'll be able to save one, but not both. What then? These are hard decisions. And sometimes, that's one example, sometimes in life we are left with no good decisions as we try to make the least bad decision. Just let those decisions be made with high confidence in the best medical guidance that you can get and with even more confidence in God's love and ability to care for each of his lives, the ones he created, in ways that we can't always anticipate. Get into those prayerfully and carefully. Murder is ending somebody's life at any time after conception. And there's also a, a certain way that it shows up towards the later years in a person's life. Psalm 139, again, David says, you know, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. He's talking about the beginning of life inside the womb. That is a life. And it says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knew the length. God determined the length that time would live. God did. And this is a tricky spot for a lot of folks. As somebody is getting old and maybe sick and, and you're thinking about medical directives and, and when do you or do you not turn off the, the breathing machine? And, and what about do not resuscitate orders? And uh, the decisions that we have to make when somebody's life is, seems to be coming to an end or may be coming to an end or is coming to an end. Again, these are hard decisions and I can't give you any specific thou shalt and thou shalt not for the particular situation that you might find yourself in because the Bible doesn't. But I can encourage you to remember that the goal of our human lives is not to live as long as we possibly can. That's not the goal of life. Scripture never says that. Extend your life for as long as you possibly can. Be alive on earth for as long as you possibly can. Our, our life in eternity goes much longer. Our hearts ache for that and long for that every day. So the goal of life is life on earth is not to live here as for as long as we can. The goal of our lives as Christians is to honor God in all that we do. 
And so to ask ourselves on a regular basis, how do our decisions, even end-of-life decisions, shine the spotlight on God's love for us in Christ? How can we live confidently on earth and also die confidently, expressing our faith? Again, decisions that we have to wrestle with prayerfully and carefully. But murder goes beyond murder. It's not just the ending of another person's life that Scripture identifies as murder. First John chapter 3 says this. He says, anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. And so anybody who hates or disrespects anyone else's life in any kind of way, this is stopping short of ending that person's life, but you are assigning less value to somebody's life. And what are some ways that you can disrespect or hate somebody else's life? Um, talking down to them, being arrogant towards them, kids rolling their eyes at their parents, tisking you know, or making some kind of sound when their parents are enforcing something that they, that they disagree with. The ways that many, uh, many politicians talk about other politicians, the ways that many, uh, many citizens talk about politicians, gossiping about somebody, trying to get somebody else to think poorly of another individual. Uh, any, the list could go on and on. We disrespect people's lives anytime we assign less value to another person's life than God does. anytime we assign less value to someone else's life than God does. And the Bible goes on to, uh, to extend the definition of what murder is. It's not just what we do to someone else's life. It can also be what we do to our own life. Self-murder, also known as suicide. There are examples in the Bible of this as well. The most famous example would be Judas, the disciple of Jesus, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and, and then felt so crummy about what he did that he convinced himself that Jesus really couldn't love someone like him. And so in unbelief, he took his life. Matthew, Matthew records Jesus warning Judas about this. When Jesus said to Judas on the night that he was betrayed as they were, as they were sitting down having the Passover meal, Jesus said, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. He's going to die. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And Jesus was saying very clearly, there are very serious consequences for taking your life out of God's hands and putting it into your hands in this particular way. Now, does that mean, someone might ask, does this mean that every person who successfully commits suicide goes to hell? And the answer is no. You have to account for a number of things when, when somebody ends their life intentionally. Uh, there can be biological or mental illnesses that rob a person of the ability to think clearly. You have to allow for what happens after a person reaches the point of, passes the point of no return when someone attempts to take their life, where they have taken the definitive action that will lead to them dying, but they have not yet died. The moments in that often short amount of time, are enough for someone to regret what they've done, to place their life and their soul again back into the hands of God, entrusted to the care of Jesus and all that he did, and then die and wake up in heaven. We also have to allow to some degree for a person's weakness of faith. That weakness of faith can show up here too. Weakness of faith is not the same thing as no faith. 
And the weakness of an individual's faith can show up in every aspect of their lives, including this particular aspect. When in a moment of weak faith, a person makes a decision that they would not make during other times in their life. So you have to allow for all of those things. But we can't minimize the serious, the serious nature that scripture talks about this with. And if you are thinking about this, if you have ever gotten to the point where you have thought about ending your life for any variety of reasons, I want you to know that you're not alone. So many people have been in the same place. And so many people in scripture have been in a similar place. One of the places that I will often go to when someone is struggling with thoughts of ending their life, thinking that there's, there's no hope for them. A woman named Hagar went out into the desert with her son Ishmael. In the desert, there's not much there. And she was having a hard time providing for both of them, such a hard time that she was convinced that there's no way that we're ever going to survive. And so she gave up. She tucked her son under a bush and just was going to allow her son to live there and then die there. And then she went off away and she was going to die in another lonely place, not being able to bear the sight of her child dying, but knowing that that's what was going to happen. But then an angel appeared to Hagar. An angel came to Hagar and said something really significant. That the angel was there because God heard the boy crying. God heard the tears of the boy who was sad. God heard the cries of the one who was in pain, the one who was lonely, the one who was hurting. And he responded. He responded by coming to Hagar and, and opening her eyes to see a pool of water that she hadn't seen there previously, whether it was there or not, I don't know. But, but she was able to grab her son and go to the water and be refreshed and keep moving forward with life because, because God responded to their hurt in the same way that God has for you. God sees your hurt. God sees your loneliness. God sees your pain. He sees your regrets. He knows the tears that they all cause. And he's already responded to them by sending a Savior who guaranteed that they won't get the best of you. God's love in Christ has the best of you. And he will not fail to provide whatever it is that you need. Sometimes it's hard to see that, just like it was for Hagar and Ishmael. But God will always provide. He will always find a way to provide. That's what he does for you. Of course, this commandment is how we do that for one another. How we meet each other's needs, take care of our physical lives. And Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a lot of guidance there. As I'm reading through this section with, with people, I just I read through the section and I ask them, to identify what jumps out at you is, you know, good, good life advice as far as interacting with others. And so I'd encourage you to do the same thing as I read through these verses. Just what jumps out at you? It says, you were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are, we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, 
but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. What jumped out at you? You can identify any number of things. To me, there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 3 that summarizes all of that so well. It says, Encourage one another daily. Encourage one another daily. Every day you're going to see people around you who need encouragement. You know that's true because you need it too. And that's how we keep the fifth commandment. Encourage one another daily. Now I mentioned as we were getting into these commandments that some of this might be kind of hard. Some of these commandments might identify specific, specific sins that you've committed that are really hard to live with. And so if that's the case for you, if the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, is a hard one for you to hear because of something in your past. And I want to leave you with some encouragement from the life of Cain. Remember Cain, he, he killed his brother Abel. And so God knew about it, obviously. The Lord, Lord came to him and said, what have you done? He said, listen, your, your brother's blood, it cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and you are driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain knew that this was, this was going to be really hard. Cain said to the Lord, he said, my punishment is more than I can bear. He says, today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me, they're going to kill me. And God could have said, well, yeah. And they would have the right to. You took a life. Shouldn't that be worth your life? But that's not what the Lord said. Instead, the Lord had mercy on him. He said, that's not what's going to happen, Cain. He said, anyone who, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. He said, I, I'll protect you. And then he put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. He protected him. He had mercy on someone who broke the fifth commandment. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And there's a significant word in that last sentence. It's the word lived. Cain lived. God gave him life, and despite his sin, he allowed him to continue on with life, which is exactly what he has done for us in Jesus. God has given you life, and despite our sin, he sent Jesus, who has promised us the best life of all, one with him one day in perfection. That's your future. It's our future.
because God cares about your life. Now go and care for the lives of others. The fifth commandment, you shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God, Martin Luther wrote, that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and befriend him in every bodily need.